You know, the uh, Anaconda had a lot of holdings in this country. Now, and, uh, Mr. Ettenauer, I'm going to put that right there. And uh, now all you have to do is talk. <laughs> My wife said I talk too much. For, uh, for historians, there isn't such a thing. As What's a, that? For historians, there isn't a, such a thing as a man who talks too much. It's impossible. Let me say, first of all, for benefit of the, the tape, that this is a tape recording of Mr. C.H. Rittenauer of Plains, Montana. And the date is February 8th, I think, 1966. And we will just very informally discuss, Mr. Dale Johnson of the Department of History and I, Ross Toole, uh, very informally discuss with Mr. Rittenauer the early days in Missoula and in Plains. As he just introduced on the tape here, this is an interview with our friend K. Ross Toole, conducted with a man named Cliff Hammond Rittenauer in Plains, Montana, which is a little town on the western edge of the Flathead Reservation. The town got its start as a railroad depot back in the early 1880s, and shortly after that, Cliff Rittenauer, the man K. Ross is interviewing, arrived in Missoula as a six-year-old. The topic of their interview is basically just to talk informally about what Missoula and western Montana was like in the 1890s and the early 1900s when Mr. Rittenauer was a young man. The interview kind of goes all over the place. There's some classic Montana small talk stuff. No, you know, I, uh, we were a little early, so we stopped at the LD Cafe, and I was talking to Mr. Johnson, and I was saying that, uh, I would like to start <coughs> with you, uh, at the beginning, uh, especially early days in Missoula, and immediately, all up and down the counter, these men said, uh, you going down to see Cliff, and so forth, and started to talk about the store and the bank, because it was a very great interest in this town, and, uh, well, history. which one of the Johnsons? Uh... Bill, I suppose. No, Bob. This Johnson. Oh, Bob. I don't know who I was talking to. I was oh. talking. We, the first man's name was Bates. Oh, Bates. Yes, he uh, worked for us in the. Store. the uh, yeah, he works at the store. At the storehouse, Francis Bates. Francis Bates. Yes. And he said, "Well, now you be sure to come in the store." And I said, "Well, we certainly will." Uh, yeah, Probably is, won't make it today. But listening to someone like yes. Mr. Rittenauer talk just adds so much detail to the image of the time and the place that you can hold in your head. Admittedly, some of it is just really inane. Mr. Rittenauer, what were the sidewalks when you first arrived? What were the sidewalks like when you first arrived? Well, where they had a sidewalk, it was built usually of uh, two-inch uh, lumber, uh, usually six or eight inches. But there's also a lot of interesting, colorful details. When, uh, during these early periods, when you were in grade school and early high school, do you ever remember seeing C.H. McLeod around, or A.B. Hammond, or uh, well, people? Well, I... Uh, used to see them around, yes. Of course, as a young fellow, I wasn't 
acquainted with them uh, at that time at all. But uh, I used to go to school with some of the Hammond, some of the Hammond uh, children. Children, Mr. Rittenauer, uh, was Missoula a tough town in your estimation? Then a lot of bars. Uh, As in what? Was it a tough town? A lot of bars, a lot of uh, saloons. Oh yes, there were lots of saloons there, and uh, a number of. Uh, there were uh, two uh, uh, variety shows there. The gym was one of them. That was in the same block as this store was, this grocery store I worked. And, uh, of course, uh, they had a stage. And, uh, and if you went in there, you didn't pay anything for going in. But uh, you were supposed to buy a drink for yourself, or if it was a party, your friends, or anything like that. And they had performances on there, sleight of hand, or uh, some girls who came out and uh, kicked up their heels and... Vaudeville, really. Kind yeah. of vaudeville, yes. Mr. Sometimes they had plenty of clothes on, sometimes they had barely any. <laughs> I've listened to a lot of interviews like this over the months that I've been working on this show, and this is how a lot of them go. You get these bits and pieces that fill in and inform small parts of the bigger panoramic sense of things that you're trying to get. But then, sometimes, you hear a story or an anecdote that just feels like it has the whole panorama of the time within it. Well, we've got you to Missoula now. We've got you living in, on Front Street, starting the Central School when you were seven. Now tell me something about these very early years in your memory. About the what? The very early years when you're seven, eight, nine, a young boy in Missoula. Well... One thing that I remember, uh, right across the Rattlesnake uh, Northern Pacific Bridge was uh, a large excavation that had been uh, caused by uh, the railroad contractor. And, of course, uh, it was full of water, naturally, from Rattlesnake going underneath. You know what I mean? Seeping. Seeping, yeah. And uh, we used to... uh, Go down there to swim in the summertime. There was no house around there. And in the wintertime, there was uh, enough uh, ice there that we would skate. And I remember uh, doing a vacation. I don't remember just what was a day or so around Thanksgiving or uh, New Year's and Christmas. But uh, we were skating there in the morning and down came some boy, I don't know who he was, of course, said, hey, fellas, you're missing something. They're hanging four Indians up at the courthouse. Let's go up there and see it. And somebody said, uh, well, you can't see it because there's a high stockade around. Well, they had built a uh, high uh, stockade of long 16, 18, 20 foot cheap lumber, but there were lots of knot holes in it. So we took off our skates and went up there 
and uh, saw Sir Bill Huesner, William Huesner. I used to go to school with his brother, Harvey. I mean his son, Harvey. And they bought out the four Indians. They were named Pasio, uh, Lenina, Lalasi, uh, I think of the other one in the mouth. The Flatheads? They were uh, Flatheads, yes. It seems that uh, up near the, of course, Missoula County in those days was the largest state in New York. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, well, of course it ran clear up above Kalispell. And it seems uh, that uh, there was a party of fur traders up there and uh, some Indians, I suppose they were renegades, had uh, slaughtered them, how many I don't know, stole their horses and their furs. Well the sheriff at that time, I will would not his name mentioned was uh, a man named Heffern, H-E-Y-F-R-O-N. He was the father of uh, a boy that I went to school with and who was on a football team with me by the name of uh, Dan Heffern and another boy by the name of Gilbert Heffern. Well, the Indians were too much for him. I don't think they killed anybody, but they stole their horses and left them afoot. But when uh, Sheriff Bill Houston went after him, he grabbed him. And uh, he hung the whole, all four of them at one time. I'm trying to think of their uh, uh, names. I know they were uh, Osseal and Lalasi and Nenema. Yeah. I'll get the other one. They got number four also, anyhow. Yeah, and four. And uh, I was tall, and there was a knot hole up there, and I put my eye up there and saw the whole thing. It didn't, uh, it didn't uh, phase me uh, a, bit. a bit. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. Matt here. John. This episode is the midpoint of our first season, looking at the turn of the 20th century. 
in Western Montana, and it's the culmination of everything we've covered so far. In the previous chapters, we saw the pressure of American expansion continually shrink the lands used by the indigenous Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay people, from 22 million acres of aboriginal territory to eventually just over a million acres on the Flathead Indian Reservation. The shrinking of land holdings through government negotiations, the near extinction of the buffalo, and the escalating environmental degradation by the big industrial interests in the state had almost completely destroyed the foundations of the traditional indigenous way of life. Nowhere was this more clear than in the Bitterroot Valley, where, after almost 40 years of struggle, Charlo's band of Salish people were forced out of the valley after government neglect, corporate pressure, devastating wildfires, and starvation made it impossible for them to stay there. As the indigenous influence in western Montana was confined, American capitalism gleefully stepped into the vacuum. By the time Charlot and his people were forced from the Bitterroot in the 1890s, regional corporate kingpins were the dominant social, political, and economic forces in the state. Let's take a look at Montana as of 1890 and some of the men that were making her that way. By that year, 1890, Butte was really a metropolis. It's destined to get bigger, but in 1890, it had a population of about 43,000 people. Anaconda had a population of 8,000, Helena, 25,000. A little uh, lumbering town west of the Divide, Missoula, had a population of 4,000. As of 1891, Helena had more millionaires per capita than any other city in the United States. They had a club called the Montana Club. You had to be a millionaire to get into it. Oddly enough, the club is still there, but you don't have to be a millionaire anymore. They'll take you if you've got 25 cents. It's sort of an egalitarian revolution. People involved. Andrew B. Hammond, Zula. He owns Missoula in a, in a very direct sort of way. He owned the Missoula Mercantile Company, Missoula Real Estate Association. He owned the First National Bank. He owned the Missoula Publishing Company. He owned the South Missoula Land Company, the Missoula Water Company, the State Lumber Company, the Street Railway System, the Light and Power Company, and the local cemetery. He also owned the big Blackfoot Milling Company, which is Bonner, the precursor of the Bonner Mill. Daly, of course, owned Anaconda, and there's no question about that. He owned the Electric Light Company, he owned the Daly Bank and Trust Company, the Anaconda Water Company, the Montana Hotel, the Butte Anaconda and Pacific Railroad, the Anaconda Flume Company, the Standard Firebrick Company, and the Standard Publishing Company. That's the second time that I've mentioned a publishing company or a newspaper. Daily now starts a newspaper, Deanna Conda Standard. Marcus Daly was also expanding his operations in the Bitterroot and in the northern part of the Flathead Reservation. 
Daly had made peace with Hammond in his attempt to run the Missoula Merc out of business, but he was still building a lumber operation of his own in direct competition with Hammond's big Blackfoot mill. In 1891, the Great Northern Railroad was completed through the northern part of the Flathead Valley, and the first product shipped out on its cars was lumber for Anaconda's smelter. Daly had secured the same sweetheart deal for himself that Hammond had with the Northern Pacific. The deal set Daly up to eventually surpass Hammond for control of the state's lumber industry. Clark, what a William Anders Clark. He owned 13 paying mines in Butte, 95% of the stock in the United Verde Copper Company of Arizona. Uh, he owned the Butte Electric Light Company. He owned the Rocky Mountain Telegraph Company. He was treasurer of the Silver Bowl Water Company. He had about $4 million in his bank in Deer Lodge. And he owned the Butte Minor Publishing Company. I might add that all of these gentlemen also owned the cemeteries. I have never understood that except that you can bet one thing, those cemeteries had to be profitable. Each of the tycoons in the state, you know, your Marcus Daly's, your Samuel T. Hauser's, your Andrew Hammond's, has their own little fiefdoms within Montana, and they're competing against each other, bending local, state, and national politics to their favor as much as they can. We started this episode off with that story from Cliff Rittenauer because we're going to spend a lot of time in the realm of the regional oligarchs in this episode. And before we do that, I wanted to open things with a street-level view of things from an ordinary person at the time. And that story he tells has just really stuck with me ever since I heard it. I looked into the event that he's talking about in that story, and it actually happened on December 19th, 1890. And to go over it very briefly, the execution was reportedly part of a years-long feud that kicked off on a cold December night in 1885 when two tribal members came to the Hammond Company trading post in Arlee, Montana, just north of Missoula on the Flathead Reservation. The store was actually ran by an uncle of Andrew Hammond's, a man named Vincent Coombs. The exact details are disputed and unreliable at this point, but some kind of dispute was aroused between the tribal members and Coombs, who called for a friend of his named Bader to come to the store armed. After a struggle, Coombs had killed one of the indigenous men and wounded another, while Bader had also been injured. According to a newspaper report on the event in the Ronan Pioneer in 1924, Coombs quickly telegraphed his family back in Missoula and called on them to raise up a posse to come to Arlie and ensure that the surviving tribal member was brought back to Missoula for justice. Apparently, Andrew Hammond himself joined this posse. Tribal leaders wanted to put the tribal member through their own justice system, but after a long conference and negotiations with Indian agent Peter Ronan, they peacefully handed him over to the police, and he and Coombs 
were both taken to jail in Missoula. Shortly after, all parties were released without charges being filed as they both claimed self-defense. The hanging that Mr. Rittenauer witnessed five years later occurred after a man named Larry Finley, who had himself just been arrested for murder, claimed to have seen two tribal members named Pierre Paul and Lala Say kill two white men on the reservation and claim it was vengeance for the man Coombs had killed years earlier, who was Pierre Paul's brother. Lala Say and Pierre Paul were caught and rounded up and executed with two other indigenous men who had been accused of killing white men. Fifty years later, in 1937, Larry Finley himself was actually stabbed to death in an act of revenge by Pierre Paul's nephew. The execution itself doesn't have more than a tangential connection to the focus of our show, but I included it in this episode because that image of a bunch of seven, eight, and nine-year-old kids ice skating around on a frozen pond at Christmas time before dropping everything to run to the jail to go watch a quadruple execution of indigenous people by peeking through cracks in the fence on their little tippy toes is just burned into my brain. And when you've got everything we've covered so far in this show in your head, I think you can see how that one little anecdote contains elements of the whole story within it. We'll definitely be hearing from Mr. Rittenauer again. His involvement in the story is not done. But for now, we're going to turn our attention back to Andrew Hammond. Chapter 5. The Missoula Octopus Where we last left off with Andrew Hammond in late 1891... He had just beat back the assault from Marcus Daly in Missoula, and his rule was uncontested in town. But his dominance of Missoula County had made him something of a reviled figure among the working masses and populist papers of the county. While he was building railroads and developing Missoula from a frontier trading post into a bustling regional center, Hammond had been seen in a positive light by the community at large, who wanted the development he was bringing. But as his control over economic, social, and political life grew more and more all-encompassing, his public image got worse. A series of local controversies in 1891 and 1892 brought the opposition against Hammond to a head. First off was the fight over the alignment of the new Higgins Avenue Bridge in late 1891. Hammond lobbied for the bridge to go straight along the north-south street alignment of downtown Missoula on the north side of the river, which would coincidentally make it cross over an island in the Clark Fork that Hammond owned, allowing him to charge the city for a right-of-way fee. But Frank Higgins wanted the bridge to bend slightly to align with the arrangement of streets in the new South Missoula neighborhood that his father, Hammond's old rival Cap Higgins, had laid out 
and which was starting to see development. The bridge question went up for a vote in late 1891, and Higgins turned the election into a referendum on Hammond's domineering control of the town. The long-simmering feud between Hammond and the Higgins family had started with the railroad deal in 1881, and now, a decade later, it was thrown back into the front pages of Missoula News with the bridge fight. But although Frank Higgins took center stage as Hammond's main antagonist, he wasn't alone in waging a public war with the Missoula Mercantile Monopoly. The editor of the Missoulian at the time was a man named Harrison Spaulding, who had fought against Hammond and the Merc in the editorial sections of his paper throughout the elections of 1888 and 89. In 89, he said that, The Missoula Mercantile Monopoly would very much like to dictate the politics of Missoula County. If they put a Republican for office, they will claim it is the solemn duty of Republicans to vote for him. If they put up a Democrat for office, they will claim it is the solemn duty of Democrats to vote for him. They will preach up the cry of party allegiance when there can be no allegiance. Spaulding branded Hammond the Missoula Octopus, characterizing him as a massive, grotesque villain with slimy tentacles that extended throughout western Montana. Hammond and his partners fought Spaulding through their own mouthpiece paper, the Missoula Gazette, which Hammond controlled through another shell corporation, the Missoula Publishing Company. When the bridge location went to a vote in September 1891, Hammond's unpopularity showed in the result, and Higgins' more expensive and less sensical location was chosen. That election is the reason that Higgins Avenue still bends to the south, right after you cross the bridge. After the victory in the bridge fight, Frank Higgins went a step further and ran for the mayor of Missoula in early 1892. Spaulding's paper was supportive of Higgins' candidacy, but he also had a much more powerful ally, Marcus Daly. Daly's paper, The Anaconda Standard, offered vocal support for Higgins' candidacy, and Daly supplied him with discreet campaign funds. Higgins and Spaulding bombarded Missoulians with sensational news stories about Hammond Enterprises and blew up every little controversy they could. Specifically, seizing on this one where Hammond constructed the region's only flour mill at his Blackfoot operations, which forced the farmers of the Bitterroot Valley down south to pay for the railroad fare to ship their wheat up to the Blackfoot to get it milled. Hammond had actually already sold the Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad to the Northern Pacific, so he wasn't actually getting the extra fare for the wheat that was going to the mill, but it was still an effective enough illustration of his monopolistic control 
for Spalding's and Higgins' purposes. Daly's Anaconda Standard said that it was the paper's duty to tell the, quote, unpalatable truth about the domineering monopoly. And Spalding's attacks, which were all kind of amusingly sarcastic, are well summarized by one editorial in which he said Hammond and his partners give more for progress, enterprise, push, and the public good than all the rest of Missoula combined, with the trifling proviso that they want the whole pot in the end. Spalding and Daly's support won Higgins the mayor's office in the 1892 election, and Hammond's reputation was at an all-time low in the county. Perhaps feeling burnt out from all the controversy and negative press, in June 1892, Hammond left Missoula, first to stop in Washington, D.C. to join the committee to officially renominate President Benjamin Harrison, and then set off on a six-month European vacation. Hammond came back in October 1892, just as the first election to decide the state capitol was kicking off. There had been a runoff election in 1892 in which there were a number of participants. Missoula neglected to nominate itself for the honor in the hope that it would get awarded the university. So seven other cities vied to win an outright majority of votes. Out of the seven contenders, Helena and Anaconda were the two dominant forces, led by their local tycoons, Samuel T. Hauser and Marcus Daly, while Andrew Hammond was largely neutral. Helena won a plurality, but Anaconda dominated Missoula County, thanks to Marcus Daly's influence in the Bittera and Hamilton. No majority was found, so a runoff election was scheduled for 1894. Missoula had held out because they hoped that they would receive the first state university. But on the first go-round, the bill to award Missoula the university died in the legislature. So when the 1893 session came around, Hammond called on his old friend and business partner, Samuel T. Hauser in Helena, and made a deal. But in the meantime, under the table, I take it that Hammond had made some deals with the people in Helena that if they got it, why, then we'd get the university here. This is Ty Robinson, who we've heard from before. Ty worked as in-house counsel for the Missoula Mercantile starting in 1948. And he learned his history of the store firsthand from C.H. McLeod's son, Walter. He's talking in an oral history with Greg Gordon in this tape. Now, years ago, a man who was warden of the prison in Deer Lodge by the name of Middleton, Austin Middleton, was telling me about the, the fact that, of course, he was, uh, he knew a history he'd been living during the days of going back to Daly. He said, Missoula, if they hadn't got the university, they'd have had the prison. So that was the choice, and Hammond wanted the university. In a series of telegrams on February 8th and 9th, 1893, Hammond told Hauser that if Helena supported Missoula with the university, his enterprises in Missoula 
would support Helena when the capital election came up again in a year's time. This time, the university bill passed the legislature, and Hammond and Frank Higgins put aside their differences and donated 40 acres in the new South Missoula development for the new campus. With the university secured, Hammond's interests seemed as well poised as they ever had. But then, almost immediately, he was hit with two significant setbacks. In March, Grover Cleveland was inaugurated for his second term in office. He had beat Benjamin Harrison in a rematch of 1888, and with his administration's return came the renewed threat of the timber indictments. Corkscrew Tom Carter had gotten rid of the suits in 1889 when he got the Harrison administration to end the investigations and pause the criminal proceedings against the incorporators of the old Montana Improvement Company. But with Harrison gone, Cleveland's Interior Department could resume the investigations and bring the charges back up at any point so a constant lingering threat of indictment again hung over Hammond and his partners. Then, in June, the economy collapsed in the panic of 1893. The mining industry tanked, and Montana was plunged into a depression that would only be comparable with the Great Depression that would come a few decades later. Almost immediately after the panic hit, A run developed on Frank Higgins Bank, the western Montana. Panicked customers pulled out their savings, and then more and more panicked customers pulled their phones out. The losses cascaded, and the bank had to shut its doors. Hammond's Bank, the first national bank of Missoula, served as the financial arm for most of his operations. And it was his main funnel for outside capital, So a run on the bank could have been devastating for him. His biggest partner in the bank was old Sam T. Hauser over in Helena, who he'd just worked with to get Missoula the university. But Hammond and Hauser fought constantly through the panic. Hauser kept drawing funds from the First National Bank of Missoula to stave off the closing of his own bank in Helena. The relationship between the two partners deteriorated with each of Hauser's requests for funds. Hammond told Hauser that the loans he was requesting were coming at the peril of all that they possessed, but continued to send money over to save Hauser. But it was all to no avail. A run developed on Hauser's Helena Bank anyway in August and forced him to shut the doors. That closure pushed many Missoulians to rush to pull out from the First National, putting it on the brink of closure. To save the bank, Hammond pulled $42,000 out of the Missoula Mercantile and deposited it in the First National, which would be more than a million dollars today. 
Hammond also pledged all of the Merck's material and property assets to the bank. The injection of that much cash saved the bank, which was the only one in the county that didn't shut down at any point in the crisis. The economic depression of the panic lingered for years, but the Merck was a bedrock institution in western Montana, and as basically the sole retail and wholesale grocery provider in the region, cash continued to flow in, and they were well suited to weather the crisis, just as they had in 1873. By January 1894, the Merck was back essentially running even, and the First National Bank had made back the 300000 they had lost, and had another 300000 in profit. Hammond was extremely critical of Hauser's handling of the crisis, saying his constant requests for money were equivalent to asking a man to jump in the river and drown himself and his friends. At one point, Hauser tried to lean on the kinship of their old deals when asking for money, and Hammond replied sharply. You must have been laboring under an intensely nervous frame of mind when you could so far forget the past. For in all business that we have had together in the past, we have at least furnished our share of the money and done our share of the work. In politics also, we have always stood by you. And we never asked you anything for it, but did so on friendship and general principles. And when you ask me to do an arbitrary act of injustice to my associates in this bank, and insist if it is not done, we are not your friend, I have only to state that if friendship is to be held this cheaply, I want none of it. But their feud was not a permanent one, because 1894 had come around, and with it came the runoff election between Helena and Anaconda to decide who would get the state capital. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll add another entry into the canon of Montana's most scandalous elections ever. Land Grab is supported by ParentingMontana.org. Here in Montana, we want the same things for our kids. We want them to be confident, respectful, and make healthy choices. To grow these skills, I've been using tools and a process I learned from ParentingMontana.org. The website has information for me about my children at every age for dealing with chores, stress, and routines. ParentingMontana.org provides me with a way to build the skills they need to be successful. ParentingMontana.org, tools for your child's success. Brought to you by DPHHS and funded in part by SAMHSA. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely 
to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out The Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media, we're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to Land Grab. We are picking things back up in the runoff election between Helena and Anaconda to decide the state capital. Hammond had obliged his operations support after Hauser had made sure the bill to give Missoula the university had passed through the last legislature. But the two of them could not compete against the might of Daly and the Anaconda Company alone. So they brought in a new partner. This time, Hammond and the Helena Cause were also allied with William Andrews Clark, the man they had betrayed just a few years before in 1888. I don't think probably Clark was terribly enthusiastic about the whole thing, but since Daly was, and since he wanted Anaconda, Clark obviously went all out for Helena. Montana's oligarchs each picked their side and threw all of their collective weight into the capital election. On July 30th, 1894, Hammond, Hauser, and William Andrews Clark all met in Helena to figure out their plan for the capital runoff. The first thing they did was purchase the Missoulian off Harrison Spaulding through Hammond's Shell Company, the Missoula Publishing Company, and turned it into a pro-Helena rag. Hammond brought a Helena editor named George Boos over to edit the paper, and his strategy was to try and turn the election into a referendum on Daly and the Anaconda Company's control over Montana. What has Anaconda ever done for Missoula anyway? 
If Christ came to Anaconda, he would be compelled to eat, sleep, drink, and pray with Mr. Marcus Daly. Each of the oligarchs in the fight then turned their attention to the get-out-the-vote efforts of the day. There's a good deal of hanky-panky here. In any event, the campaign featured, among other things, unlimited whiskey in the woods camps. Montana simply went on a binge. Everybody, in essence, quit working and participated in the campaign one way or the other. For instance, Clark devised the system because Butte was the core of this thing. If you could take Butte, you took the election. Clark had barrels of dollar bills on this corner. When Daly discovered that, he put barrels with $2 bills on other corners. If I'd been there, I'd have done a lot of walking around corners, but I wasn't there. <clears throat> the woods camp simply shut down and everybody got drunk because whiskey was available both from Clark and Daly in barrel form, bottle form, you name it, it was available and it was free. In Missoula, C.H. McLeod and Gust Moser ran the campaign on the ground for Hammond's enterprise. K. Ross has a story here about a Hammond-owned wood camp up in Plains. Down here at Plains, Montana, there was the McGowan Mercantile Company. Incidentally, it's still there. McGowan had a, a foreman by the name of Sullivan who had 18 men on the payroll in the woods camps. And McGowan came out to Sullivan one day and said, on the evening train, there are 250 men arriving to work in the woods. And Sullivan said, Mr. McGowan, I... I can't put those people to work. There isn't enough work for them. And McGowan said, who's talking about work? You just be damn sure they vote for Helena. And they arrived, and they were all loaded, but they all voted for Helena. We will definitely hear more about the McGowan Mercantile later in the show. Cliff Rittenauer, who we heard at the start of the episode, will actually end up going out to Plains and working for the mercantile there in the early 1900s, and both of them will come back into the story then. It was an interesting election because it broke a record in the United States for, I suppose, what you would call civic duty. There were 51,500 registered voters in Montana, and 55,000 voters voted. (laughs) The Capitol fight was a huge exertion by all involved. Clark, Hauser, and Hammond calculated that their side had spent $30 a vote, which would be almost $1,000 a vote today. Now, uh, you have the information relative to the fight for the Capitol where Daly wanted Anaconda, and Hammond had bought the newspaper and owned the Missoulian at the time, and he pushed hard for Helena and lost the battle right in Missoula County. People in Missoula County voted against Helena. Anaconda actually won the vote in Missoula County, demonstrating just how powerful Daly and the Anaconda Company had become in the Bitterate and the Flathead. But Hammond's support for Helena 
made it a much closer margin than it had been in the first election, and that helped Helena get the win over the line. The capital fight again is important. One, because more than a million dollars again now was spent in a political campaign, in a personal contest between two very powerful men, and two, because Montana went on a binge of booze and free parties and free everything, all designed clearly and openly to buy votes. And again, you get a further solidification of the idea that the employee owes his political allegiance to his employer. Uh, these two gentlemen in this campaign spent about a million five hundred thousand dollars, Clark for Helena, Daly for Anaconda. The figures are accurate, I think, because this whole thing is subsequently to be investigated by a committee of the United States Senate, which subpoenaed the entire legislature and a whole bunch of other Montanans. The committee on Privileges and Elections, which is a very interesting document. S.T. Hauser, whom you've heard of before, was subsequently testifying before the Committee on Privileges and Elections in the United States Senate. And an incredulous senator asked him, he said, do I understand you to say that in these Montana elections a million dollars would go for legitimate expenses? To which Howard Hauser replied this way, it would depend on what you would call legitimate expenses. I presume in the East some of these expenses would hardly be considered legitimate, but we are not in the East. Outside of the huge financial cost, the support for the Helena cause had a big impact on Hammond's reputation in Missoula, and he confided to Hauser in a telegraph that the campaign had cost them many customers who resented their involvement. If you're wondering why Hammond sank all this time and effort and money into the capital fight, the answer lies in the university. Hammond had donated 40 acres for the construction of the initial campus, but it was on an island in a sea of real estate that Hammond owned through one of his shell companies, the South Missoula Land Company. Now, Hammond owns South Missoula Land Company. You're familiar with that. Right. You're looking at the last surviving witness of the Missoula Land Company's hierarchy. Everything from the river to South Avenue was South Missoula. As the campus expanded, the value of the land Hammond owned would greatly increase in value, presenting a lucrative long-term revenue source. And the South Missoula Land Company would maintain property interests in the university district well into the 20th century. We had a five-member board, South Missoula, when I came aboard in the Merck, and they put me on the board, and I eventually became the president, liquidating South Missoula Land Company. And all we had left were some lots out in the university area, university edition. After the capital election in fall 1894, 
Hammond had essentially done everything that he could do in Montana. Marcus Daly would inevitably surpass him in the lumber business within a few years, but he had already begun phasing out his Blackfoot Mill operation. And the Missoula Mercantile was his real golden goose. The company was firmly ensconced as the dominant retail, grocery, and wholesale outfit in the entire region. It was the biggest company of its kind between the Twin Cities and Portland. Hammond owned a U.S. senator outright, old corkscrew Tom Carter, and he had secured the university for Missoula, with his interests positioned to profit the most off of the development it would bring. Hammond had been a largely absentee oligarch in Montana since 1889, when he began spending increasing amounts of time in Portland, California, and New York, rubbing shoulders with the real upper crust of tycoons and industrial kingpins. Hammond was a psychotically ambitious man, and was not content merely being a regional power in the backwoods of Montana. He'd long had one eye casting around for opportunities to move into the bigger markets on the West Coast, and in fall 1894, he got a fateful letter from a former employee named Edwin Stone. Stone had moved to Oregon a few years before and wrote to Hammond with an enticing opportunity. The Oregon Pacific Railroad, a small line from Corvallis to the Yakina Bay, had fallen into disrepair when its original builder had run out of money shortly before the line was set to be finished. If Hammond could drum up the capital to purchase the line, finish, and repair it, the railroad could be had at a rock-bottom price. The line was close to the Portland metro area and some of Oregon's most premier remaining timberlands, and Hammond sensed an opportunity. Basically, as soon as he got that letter, Hammond's full attention moved out of Montana and into the railroad venture. For the rest of the year, he was only ever in Missoula for a few days at a time, mainly just stopping through as he went back and forth from Portland and New York, trying to drum up financing for the railroad. Shortly after, Hammond started negotiations for another small coastal Oregon line, the Astoria and Columbia River Railroad, which ran from Portland out to the coast. By early 1895, everything was looking hunky-dory for Hammond. He was confident enough that his takeovers of the Oregon railroads would go through that he handed full control of the Montana operations over to his nephew and protege, C.H. McLeod. In a letter back to C.H. on February 20th, 1895, Hammond told his nephew that he still expected to accomplish all that he had undertaken in Oregon. Hammond acknowledged the hangover from the panic and the capital fight, but still forecasted a bright future. I am sure that you have a great many annoyances to contend with in Missoula, but they are little petty matters after all. I do not think that luck has failed us. I believe that we are about to enter upon an era of great prosperity, and our credit rating is gilt-edged here. We are in a position to take most any ordinary enterprise in any part of the country and carry it to a successful issue. 
but we must shake off the dead weight, of which we have been carrying too much in the past. Notwithstanding the little streak of misfortune you have had in Missoula, I feel that the Missoula Mercantile Company is going to have a very successful season. But once again, just as everything was starting to line up, things got complicated again. That same month, February 1895, Hammond got a frantic message from his business partner, E.L. Bonner. Remember that Bonner was the merchant who had given Hammond his start back in the 1870s, but had quickly turned over the day-to-day control to Hammond so that he could spend more time rubbing shoulders with the bigwigs in New York and Washington. Bonner's urgent message for Hammond was that he had heard that the new Interior Department of the second Cleveland administration was reactivating investigations into timber poaching in the western states. And they needed to find out if that included the investigation into the operations of the old Montana Improvement Company. The threat of the investigation had been looming since Cleveland returned to office, and Hammond quickly sprung into action. Hammond ordered Bonner to get together with their senator, Tom Carter, and meet with the Interior Secretary, M. Hoke Smith, and the Land Commissioner, Silas Lamoureux, to find out more and to try to get rid of the investigation if it was back on. Again, we've got some really great names over at the Interior Department here. But the Merck's influence in the Cleveland administration was much less than it had been with their close ally, Benjamin Harrison. And they walked away from the meeting without any answers from officials. Hammond suspected that the investigation was back on, and the officials just wanted to keep it a secret. Hammond's hunch was confirmed shortly after, when the Interior Department refused to approve four timber permits for the big Blackfoot milling company on government lands along the Blackfoot River. After the first round of timber suits and the subsequent backlash in the 1880s, the Interior Department had switched to a permit system in the 1890s. Lumber companies had to apply for permits and be approved by the government. But the process was largely just a formality. Especially under Harrison, permits for big companies were rarely, if ever, rejected. And because the permits were always issued for these really small sections of land, those big companies always ended up chewing through them and quickly moving right back to poaching more timber off of unapproved public lands. The Blackfoot Mills permits were held back after questions were raised about the legality of their operations by Preston Leslie, a Democratic political operative in Helena who had been appointed territorial governor by Grover Cleveland during his first term. 
The charge that the big Blackfoot milling company was illegally cutting down public timber was almost certainly true. Given the small size of the permitted lands and tens of millions of board feet of lumber the mill was churning out each year. But Hammond wasn't about to go down for it. Hammond's behavior changed almost immediately after hearing from Bonner that the investigations could be back on. He was already leaning out of Montana, focusing on the Oregon railroads, but now he essentially cut all public ties and set up residence in Portland. In March 1895, he made his last fleeting visits to Missoula. He came in secret, communicating only through coded telegrams with C.H. McLeod to minimize his risk of being spotted and even detained while in town. Hammond and McLeod were plotting their first course of action to respond to the looming threat. They were trying to use their influence in Washington to get Gust Moser, the man who had been McLeod's main assistant in coordinating the mercantile's political dirty work, appointed as the federal mineral land selector for Missoula County, the position responsible for granting timber permits to the Blackfoot Mill. The plan was as obviously corrupt as it seemed, which is why they kept it a secret. Moser had no qualifications for the post, and his listed occupation at the time was the secretary of the Montana Improvement Company, which had not existed for eight years at that point. Unsurprisingly, that plot failed, and Moser was not appointed. Hammond completely vanished out of Missoula after that, pulling the strings from afar and leaving McLeod to handle things directly. After the Moser appointment failed, the mercantile went to even more corrupt measures. They hired a Wisconsin lawyer named Frank B. Lamoureux to go lobby their case in Washington. If that name sounds familiar, it is. Frank Lamoureux was the nephew of the land commissioner at the time, who was actually withholding the permits and overseeing the investigation, Silas Lamoureux. In October 1895, Frank Lamoureux went to Washington to lobby his uncle to get the permits approved and the investigations stopped. Frank wrote back to C.H. McLeod on Halloween and told him that he was confident he could receive the option desired, but that he had encountered considerable opposition. Lamoureux told McLeod he had seen the reports in the land office's investigation, and that they report that your company is composed of the same individuals that have been wronging the government under another name, that you are not living up to either the spirit or the letter of the law, that you cut all timber without regard to the rules of the Interior Department, that your company trespassed upon government lands, set fires to cover up your tracks, and cut witness trees. They say that your company made vast sums by cutting government timber and violating the laws, and they recommended not granting the permits and even recommended legislation opposing the granting of further permits. Lamoureux said that he had pulled some strings and vouched for the strictest secrecy 
from all interested parties. He told McLeod to meet him in Chicago and signed off by saying, we have some large bills to pay in connection with this deal. On November 8th, Lamoureux wrote back to McLeod saying that he had secured the permits and quashed the investigations as long as McLeod paid him $2,000, which would be more than $50,000 today, to make good on the large bills that were owed to Interior Department officials. It's tough to say exactly what the $2,000 bought the company beyond its timber permits, but there is some suggestion. In 1896, a few mid-level operatives in the old improvement company and Blackfoot Mill timber cutting operations were indicted in Montana District Court. The government charged them with illegally cutting more than $200,000 worth of federal timber, but none of the company's actual leaders were charged, and the defendants paid out a settlement at a quarter of the price the government charged them with. But in his oral history, Ty Robinson suggests that the investigation had initially charged Hammond's organizations with cutting much more. Hammond saw to it that, and then you're familiar with Hammond and his appropriation of the federal timber. That's what I'm, one of the things I'm working on right now. And you're aware of the fact that in 1894, the federal government said, you owe us some money. And I found in two different places, uh, one was less than a million dollars, they said, and the other was more than a million. They didn't give an exact figure. More than a million in 1894, that's an awful lot of money. Of course, he'd been running those sawmills. He had a sawmill up at Troy. Nobody seemed to be, I've been there to try to find information and nobody seems to know today where it was even located. If Ty is right about that, it seems like that $2,000 got the charges against the company shrunk down to about a tenth of what they would have been and saved the company millions and its incorporators the hassle of criminal charges. When Hammond finally moved out of Montana for good in 1895, he put his nephew, C.H. McLeod, in charge of their operations in the state. McLeod had been working under Hammond since he had brought his first round of New Brunswick family members out to Montana in the early 1880s after the railroad deal. McLeod had been Hammond's most reliable lieutenant since the moment he arrived, and has played important parts in many of Hammond's biggest schemes. C.H., as he was known, had been running the day-to-day operations of the store for years, but now he had the full mantle of control thrust upon him. After getting the timber troubles over with for the time being, McLeod's next priority was to soften the brand of the Missoula Mercantile, away from the reviled reputation of the Missoula Octopus, as well as to continue selling off Hammond's Montana assets 
and further obscuring the chain of ownership in his businesses. So Hammond would be further shielded from criminal or civil liability for any of his company's illegal activities over the years. McLeod sold the big Blackfoot mill to Marcus Daly and the Anaconda Company for more than a million dollars in 1898, which completed Daly's full takeover of the timber industry in the state, but conveniently added another layer of corporate ownership to distance Hammond from responsibility for the company's actions. You know, the Mercs sold the Missoula Street Railway to Clark. Oh, huh? They ran that, as well as the Power and Light Company, and... uh, They sold that to Clark. All of this was designed to give the appearance of a breakup of Hammond's monopoly, the severing of the tentacles of the Missoula octopus. But as we'll see throughout the rest of the show, the reach of the octopus didn't shrink at all, and its tentacles will spread up and down the West Coast. The reason they did all this was to avoid a real public understanding of just how big and how powerful they really were in western Montana. When Hammond was running the show, he was too visible as the obvious kingpin of the whole operation. Even as he actively tried to obscure his involvement in many ventures, everyone knew he was the one pulling all the strings. And this attracted the ire, not just of the working people of western Montana, but it also attracted the heat of the federal government. The guy at the head of everything makes an easy target. It seems that it it always struck me as sort of odd that that out of all the founders of Missoula, that everybody knows who Higgins and Warden and all these other guys are. Even McLeod, we have McLeod Peak and everything. And Hammond sort of got... I know where you're going. Do you think that was deliberate? Yes. Uh, Very deliberate. Uh... Walner said that Hammond himself, while he was rough at times with, uh, like, C.H. and not rough, he just pushed him and made him what he was, a very great manager. And C.H. ruled this town with a single hand after uh, Hammond left. You didn't do any in this town without checking first with C.H., as they called him. Well, anyway... Walter said Hammond wanted to keep a low profile. And as to do that, when they bought the Missoulian, it wasn't bought in the name of uh, the Merck. It wasn't bought by Hammond or anybody. It was bought by a couple of, in the name of some of the people in the Merck, the clerks. Mm. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, from a business or legal, you think it was from a business or legal perspective? If you're going to be a magnet and you're going to be a, an entrepreneur of a lot of things, I'm sure, I'm just guessing, a Donald Trump would be an exception to it. <clears throat> you want to stay back. Howard Hughes was an example of that. Of course, he was very reclusive. But I have the feeling that he had his hands in so many pots mm-hmm. that he probably didn't want the publicity. There is one instance, and I can't remember what this is. He set up a subsidiary organization somewhere and made C.H. the president of it, I think, 
and C.H. had to go to the bank to borrow money for it in his own name. Not in the name of the corporate group, not in the name, which seemed funny to me. And Hammond didn't show anywhere. So this move that Hammond makes out of Montana in the 1890s is really important to understand. At the root of much of it is just Hammond's personal ambition. He wanted to reach the level of your Rockefellers, your Huntingtons, your Bezoses, the true top level of captains of industry. He knew that he couldn't achieve that in the hinterland of Montana. So that's one reason. Following the big money out to the coast to try to make the next jump up. But another reason, just as crucially important, is that he moved out of Montana, put McLeod in charge, and divested direct control of many of his assets in order to get eyes off the operation, to lessen the attention and the scrutiny that came when the Hammond name was everywhere. And C.H. McLeod is going to prove the perfect guy to carry this thing out. Because everywhere Hammond was deficient as a leader, McLeod excelled. Hammond was mean and off-putting. He was super demanding and extremely mistrustful. McLeod was big and gregarious and a real people person. Was there that same antagonism between uh, sort of the McLeods and... No, he handled that better than... Or differently, anyway, than Andrew. No, and there was a reason for that. He was in the marketing business, and he was going to get along with everybody, I think, in that extent. And gradually, he phased those people out, like uh, selling the mill and getting getting rid of that, and getting rid of the street railway and those other things. He pushed those things around, where he's nothing but an entrepreneur, and he's running a mercantile establishment. Then, but he does have these outlying interests. And it is the decades under his leadership, which we're going to discuss over the rest of the show, that the rose-colored, home-style reputation the Merck still carries in Missoula came about. To wrap things up for this chapter... This sort of self-redaction from history that Hammond and McLeod attempted was really successful. I think even still today, most people in Missoula probably don't even know who Andrew Hammond was or what his impact on the town has been until they listen to Landgrab, of course. Hammond even disappeared from the physical history of Missoula when Frank Higgins, as mayor, renamed Hammond Avenue into Gerald Avenue after one of his kids. There's four streets in the University District in Missoula that are uh, Ronald, Gerald, Helen, and Hilda, and those are all Higgins' kids. But Hammond's legacy was, and still is, carved into the landscape and the skylines of western Montana. The railroads he built snaked throughout the region, providing the platform for Montana's vast natural resources to be chopped down or dug out and shipped off to coastal markets. His mills continued to gobble up timberlands and fell the state's iconic stands of old-growth pine. He'd built and funded the banks and secured the capital for Helena and the University for Missoula, two institutions 
that still define those towns. He'd engineered the removal of the Bitterroot Salish and brought two presidents to heel over the timber suits. And he'd turned the Missoula Mercantile Company into the bedrock economic institution in the whole region, the biggest retail and wholesale business between the Twin Cities and Portland, and the umbrella that covered all of his other holdings in Montana. A truly massive octopus with tentacles in every industry and community in half of the state. As Hammond and the Mercantile Company prospered, Charlo and his band suffered. And after 20 years of extortionary pressure, were forced to leave their home and left to start over and make a new life on the Jocko Reservation, the last landholding of the tribes and white settlers' next target. At one point during his extended bust-up and move-out phase in the 1890s, Andrew Hammond gave an extended interview in which he provided what I think are some really fitting parting words to Missoula and western Montana. Business is all right, with us at least, and doubtless for that reason the howl of monopoly is raised. The different organizations with which I am associated are too well systematized, and our interests are too great and too firm to be run out by the mouthings of a few passing birds, whose belongings are nominal and whose stock in trade consists of spleen and malice. We are here to stay. And while we are ever ready to join with the people in all public enterprises, we are also equally prepared, if others do not join us, to go it alone. Hammond's departure from Montana and the Bitterroot Salish resettlement on the Flathead Reservation mark the midpoint of our story. In the rest of the season, we're going to see how the Missoula Merc, under McLeod's leadership, leads the charge to allot the Flathead Reservation and take away the last pieces of the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay homelands. The reason we've spent the time in this first half going into so much detail about Hammond's rise and the tribe's fall is because you need to understand everything that's happened here before you can really understand what comes next. You need to see exactly how Montana's indigenous people were cheated and forced out of the lands they cared for for tens of thousands of years before you can understand the magnitude of the loss when white settlement finally moves into their last land holding on the Flathead Reservation. You need to see the Mercantile's empire build up, see the tentacles grow off the Missoula octopus, and wrap their way around all of the foundational institutions in western Montana, before you can understand 
just how pervasive and dominant they are in everything that happens in the county. And you need to see how regional corporate oligarchs grew to control every lever of social, political, and economic life in Montana in the second half of the 19th century, so you can understand how that control shifts, consolidates, and grows as the 20th century arrives. We're going to take a break over the holidays while we work on finishing up the second half of the season, but we'll be back in the new year with more land grab. In the second half of the season, we're going to see the Missoula Mercantile move in on the Flathead Reservation, the Standard Oil Company move in on Montana, and the Salish, Ponderé, and Kootenai continue to fight for their survival. All while the specter of Andrew Hammond hangs over everything. The General Allotment Act, one of the most atrocious pieces of legislation which ever passed through the Congress of the United States. The Flathead Reservation up here alone lost a million acres. If you wonder when you drive up to Flathead Lake why you don't see Indians, why you see whites, that's why. The General Allotment Act of 1887. It's an interesting land grab. Sear, Beckwith, Sterling, the Missoula Mercantile, part of the founding of it, it was a real estate business, selling land on the reservation. The Missoula and Kalispell and local markets were so flooded with flathead livestock that they were virtually giving them away at the auction yards. Joe Dixon was a prominent Montana politician and considered one of the real leaders of the progressive movement during the, the turn of the last century. And uh, uh, he also was, was associated with the white settlement of uh, Indian reservations. And that was kind of controversial, especially with the Native American people. Grab is written and produced by John Hooks, Matt Newman, and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. 
You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.